Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. Thank you for joining us to worship and learn more about God as we all pursue Him together as a community. For more podcasts and services about past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendecatur.org. Or come connect with us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. Now, enjoy the message. Well, good morning. Um, I was already introduced this morning, but my name is Christine Henderson. It is my privilege to be here this morning to share the scripture that we are going to get into with Jeff this morning and really um, pick that apart and see what we can take away from it. We are in Luke this morning, um, chapter 6, verse 37 through 42. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use it, will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Well done, well done. Uh, One question as we get started, is Milliken in the house? Let me ask again, I caught you by surprise. Is Milliken here today? Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Uh, Welcome back, students. If if this is your first time, I want to personally say thank you for coming. Um, I hear there's quite a revival that's been taking place at Milliken um, last fall and has even carried through to this spring. So God bless you. May God continue to lead you. While you're here in Decatur, we pray you find a good and godly church to attend. I know of one, in case you're asking, (laughs) if you want to know which one I think you should come to. But anyways, um, well, let's let's get started, shall we? Billy Sunday, uh, name, it's his real name, Billy Sunday. He had a formula for the ideal Christian life. If you aren't familiar with Billy Sunday, he was a revivalist Christian. And with his ministry, he uh, traveled, traversed rather, the United States about 100 years ago. And he crisscrossed the United States and he uh, attracted these enormous crowds to his gatherings where he would preach and he would give altar calls. And a lot of people became... Christians because of his ministry. And one of the standout features of his big tent sort of revivals was this thing called the sawdust trail. And some of you may or may not be familiar with that, but in in all these tents that were set up, there was a wide aisle that led from the back of the tent all the way up to the front to where the the pulpit was located. And, And the floors were just basically dirt or earth floors. And they would put like a couple inches of sawdust down on the the ground 
um, in the middle of these aisles, and it did a couple things for them. Number one, it prevented them from having to build temporary floors. They would just throw sawdust down. It was a lot easier. And in the age before air conditioning and antiperspirant, say amen, it could be swept out, right? It could be swept out, and it could put in new sawdust every other day or so to keep the tent smelling fresh. Um, this is a reminder to all you men, take a shower before you come to church, because there's a lot of girls here that might want to sit next to you, just saying. So we don't throw sawdust down. We buy you deodorant. That's what we do. So the sawdust could be um, swept out, but it also kept the, the dust down during dry days and kept the, the mud away and mitigated the mud when it was wet. And this layer of sawdust marked the trail from each row all the way down to the pulpit where Billy Sunday would invite people to come to the, at the conclusion of his sermons every week and to surrender their life to Jesus, to repent, to become Christians, to kneel down there in the sawdust and to give and surrender their life to the Lord. And it was at the end of this sawdust trail that many, and I mean thousands upon thousands of individuals, became Christians. Eventually, that term, hitting the sawdust trail, entered into our culture's vocabulary, and it became um, a synonym for repentance and conversion. And though Billy Sunday, he, he didn't coin the term himself, he did use it in a lot of his uh, talks. And we find his use of the term, the sawdust trail, in his formula, his stepped formula for the ideal Christian life. He had two steps for the ideal Christian life. If you're taking notes, this is where you start. Step one, he said, hit the, the sawdust trail, fall on your knees, and receive Christ as your Savior. Step one. Step two, walk out of this tent into the street and get hit by a truck and go straight to heaven. <laughs> it was a two-step process of living the perfect Christian life. Uh, laughing at Billy Sunday's formula, Eugene Peterson once said that we must admit that it is a wonderful formula for getting to heaven the quickest and easiest way. It's virtually foolproof. There's no time to backslide. There's no temptations to bother with, no doubts to wrestle, no spouse to have to honor, no kids to put up with, no enemies to love, no more sorrow, no more tears, just instant eternity. Thankfully, and I mean that, thankfully, that isn't the course that many of our lives will follow. So we must learn to deal with those issues that Billy Sunday jokingly encouraged us to miss. Let me ask you these questions. How do we follow Christ and deal with doubt? How do you do that? Where will the power um, to overcome temptation to sin, where is it going to come from? And maybe more importantly for you, when is it going to come? Who's gonna guide us through the difficulties of this life to make sure that we don't get lost along the way? How can we live a life faithful to Christ in a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to it? Has anyone asked that question lately? I've come to believe that a lot of these questions and many more like them should the days tarry, none of these questions catch Jesus by surprise. As the exemplar of living a godly life and as the model which God works to conform our image into Jesus, he taught his disciples the importance of maturing. He taught his disciples the importance of leaving childlike behavior and childlike ways behind. One day when Jesus was discussing with a man named Nicodemus a new way of following God, he used the metaphor of a person being born again which entails a new start. It's a new beginning as a new person. This implies that a person's going to grow and then mature. We all understand that we are each born as a small, helpless baby, much like the little kiddos on the stage today. 
And day by day, in small increments, some smaller than others, we began to get the hang of this thing called living. We learned to use utensils to feed ourselves, most of us. We learned not to leave the popcorn in the microwave too long or it'll burn. And we learned that lying to those closest to us only creates guilt and shame and distrust. We lived and we learned. In much the same way, Christ is saying that we must mature as Christians. When we are born again, we become infants of another sort. We have entered into a world where spiritual disciplines and spiritual principles and practices take precedence over our lives. And many of them are at odds with the world system that is around us. Many of those principles that God has laid out for us are at odds with the world that you and I have grown accustomed to. And so we need instruction. We need to be trained in a new way to walk with God. Is everybody with me? No applause? That's okay. I don't care. Um, Eugene Peterson said this, Growing up involves the work of the Holy Spirit, forming our born-again spirits into the, Christ, into the likeness rather, of Christ. Jesus understood this, and he used many opportunities to teach his followers. And while many of us have only ever called him Lord, and or savior, many of his followers called him teacher. And perhaps we should too. See, these verses that we're going through today that Christine read for us before in Luke chapter six, they're a continuation of teachings that Jesus um, had in what we call the Sermon on the Plain. If you're not familiar with that language, Sermon on the Plain, it's like the junior version of the Sermon on the Mount, which I'm sure you've all heard of. It's what, it's what Matthew records in uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But Luke records a shorter version, which is why we call it the junior version of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And to be clear, calling it a junior version is not to imply that it is less than or minor in regards to its importance. It is super important to us. Rather, it's just a much shorter sermon. So let's jump in. Verses 37 and 38, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one underneath the, the seat around you. It's a hardback black Bible. You are welcome to use that Bible. Look at me. You're welcome to take that Bible home with you if you don't own a Bible. We do not, and I say this repeatedly here at the church, we do not want to add to your collection of Bibles that you might have at home. So if you want to borrow it for today and leave it here, yes, you can do that. If you don't own one, take it home and write your name in it. It belongs to you. But starting in verse 37, we'll read, and we'll put the words behind on the screen too. You can just follow along there. We read, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Yes, I can get on board for all those things. He said, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure that you use it, it will be measured back to you. One of the first things we're learning from Jesus' instruction here and this idea of growing up and maturing in the ways of God is this is a, a fourfold exhortation, a fourfold encouragement of us for born-again believers following after Jesus. And he says that we are not to judge, that we are not to condemn, that we are to forgive, or the word maybe could be better translated to release others, and we are to give. These commands to not judge Others does not mean, and hear me when I say this, it does not mean that we should eliminate all of our critical faculties when we see the behavior in others. If that were true, 
We wouldn't even be able to write a letter of reference or recommendation for someone. Just this last week, uh, TJ, our worship director, you guys know he's leaving, going to be going down to North Carolina. And he asked if I would like, write a letter of recommendation for him. Gladly would I do so. But if I were to be a literalist in reading the scripture that says I'm not to judge someone, I would have to tell TJ, sorry, not supposed to judge you. Even though it's a positive judgment, wouldn't you say that a reference letter is a po But it seems like we're not supposed to pay attention to anyone. That's not the case. And some literalists even say that if you can't judge people, we shouldn't even be serving as jurors in a trial. Right? Who am I to judge? He threw his wife off the cliff. I don't know, right? <laughs> I don't know her. Maybe she, no, anyways, right? This is the edge. I know exactly where it is. I'm fine. Do not worry for me. I've been doing this a long time. I'm a trained professional. And if I make a mistake, my wife will tell me as soon as we get in the car. So it's completely fine. So it's, it can't be that Jesus is saying, I don't want you paying attention to others. I don't think that's what he's intimating here. I think it means something else. One of the commentators I read said something that struck with me, and I'll share it with you. He said that we're not to withhold mercy from other people. Don't prejudge them and decide that they're unworthy of kindness. Don't prejudge them and think they're unworthy of grace or even love. And he has a lot to say about judging in the previous section that we studied last week. So if you weren't here last week, go back and listen. It's a whole section that we called enemy love. And it's very difficult to do the things that he's asking us to do. But what's important for us now to see the correlation between judging and not showing mercy. Judging and condemning here appear to refer to a similar concept for us, that of withholding mercy. And God wants us to be people who give mercy to others, yes? So his fourfold exhortation continues. We're to be people who forgive others. Another translation that we should be people who forgive or release people. We've probably all heard sermons, many sermons, ad nauseum about how forgiveness impacts you more than the other person. And how many of you would admit that's honestly true, that you've held something against someone and when you finally release them in forgiveness, you find yourself released as well. If you've never experienced this, uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, I encourage you, forgive someone you think is unworthy of forgiveness. And watch what God does in your life and your relation to how you think about them. Here's what's beautiful. And I'm so far off notes now. I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, when you forgive someone, um, I had a person that kind of wronged me a while back. I won't mention who it was. But if you want to know, email me. I'll tell you. So... And I was so consumed with thoughts about them, like not in good ways, like kind of, you know what I mean? Like, and it's like, what did I do wrong? Why couldn't I have done this better? And I was just consumed, consumed, consumed. And I mean, for like 14 months, 16 months, a couple years, whatever it was. And one day I just stepped in this place where the Lord was leading me. It's like, why don't you just let it go? Like, why don't you forgive them? And when I did so, check this, my mind freed up. And when I stopped at trains, right? Because we get trains a lot in Decatur. Welcome to Decatur, Millican students. There's a lot of trains. I, I, my mind didn't immediately start thinking about them. And the quiet space between, you know, going to bed, talking to my wife and falling asleep, that little space, my mind didn't immediately go to them once I'd forgiven them. The release that took place was not just forgiveness for them, but for forgiveness for me. Is anyone tracking with this? I think this is for you guys because I didn't have this in my notes and I believe that's what the Lord would say. Jesus continues to say that we're to be people who give. 
When I was a young Christian over 20 some years ago, I remember reading that verse in John chapter three, verse 16, that said that God gave his only son, gave his only son. You know, in Jesus' day, in that particular part of the world, the, the sons were highly favored in the family, particularly the firstborn son. They would get the inheritance. And if you were only going to have one son, the only, the one and only son, it was the most highly favored son that you had. And here's God giving his one and only son, his special son. And he did so so that we could be released, that we could be released from the chains of sin and death and so let's all attempt to be giving like God. Let's take our prized possessions like time and money and even material things like cars and furniture and food, and let's just give it to the world around us. And I can think of no greater way to prove that we do not hold tightly to the things of this world than by giving them away. J.C. Ryle, a commentator, said this, that the general meaning of these four exhortations appear to be this, that no man... No woman shall ever be a loser um, in the long run by deeds of self-denying charity and love for others. At, time, at times, he may or she may seem to get nothing by this Christ-like conduct. They may even appear to reap nothing but ridicule and contempt and injury. Their kindness may sometimes tempt people to take advantage of them. Their patience and their forbearance may be abused. You may be taken advantage of. But in the last, J.C. Rao says, they will always be found a winner, a gainer, is what he writes, Son of old language. It just means this, that in this life and certainly in the life to come, they will always come out on top. And Jesus moves from these passages, hard passages about forgiving others that aren't worthy of loving enemies, turning the other cheek, all of that comes to a close. And he moves now to these parables, two little parabolic teachings that speaks to us in a way that is helpful. Verse 39, he says this, Jesus tells them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? The answer is no, God, no. Well, they can, they just don't do it very well. Make for great TV, I think. He says, well, they both fall into a pit. Yes. Verse 40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Luke here uses the term blind as a metaphorical term for individuals without faith and or insight. Both of the blind men in the story and the teacher and the disciple story in verse 40 iterate a need, hear me, a need for a trustworthy and insightful guide. And by using these examples, which everyone listening to Jesus would have understood, Jesus is really asking them, who do you follow? Because everyone follows someone. Everyone needs someone to lead them to a place that they want to go to. And Jesus, in using these parables, is asking them, who are you following? He continually speaks to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his days, as being those blind guides who are leading people into an empty and bankrupt religious system that cannot, in fact, help you, but rather enslaves you. So blind people can't lead other blind people. Everyone needs someone to lead them. He's asking, I would ask, who are you following? And then Luke doesn't give us their answer. And we're met here with a narrative suspense that just makes me itch. Come on, what's happening? What do they choose? We understand which person Jesus wants them to follow. Can I ask you, who does Jesus want them to follow? Jesus. <laughs> Milliken, listen to me. Whenever I ask a question, the answer is Jesus. It's always Jesus. I will never not ask you a question. The answer is not Jesus. So let's try again. Who does Jesus want them to follow? 
Jesus. <laughs> this is my new favorite section right here. Sorry about you. Sorry about you. Up to this point, Jesus has been redefining the cultural norms that the, the followers of God have been living in. He's telling them to love enemies, to bless those who persecute. And when someone robs you, he says, why don't you give them other stuff? More stuff than they even asked for. How ridiculous does that sound? I do know, real quick, story of a guy who was a pastor down in St. Louis, and he had a, um, uh, a living room, like uh, a small house, and he had a couch and a love seat. And when he brought it home from the furniture store, he realized the couch didn't fit in his living room. So he left it on his front porch. You know that neighborhood, you know what I'm talking about, where they had the furniture out on the front porch? This is where this guy lived. And one day, about one o'clock in the morning, he's up late watching television, his family's asleep, and he hears some footsteps on the porch. And some people are stealing his couch. And he opens the door and they just bolt and to drop the couch and run. He goes, no, 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 hang on. I got a love seat that matches the couch. I swear to you, it's a real story. He says, I've got something that goes with that. Do you need that? Take it and take this one too. How ridiculous of a thought. Jesus is leading the gathered masses. And the question for them and for us is, are they going to hear him? Are they going to internalize his unconventional worldview down, or his unconventional worldview and live in this upside down kingdom that God has made for us? Will they listen and become like their teacher? J.C. Ryle says this, there is great danger in listening to false teachers, false religious teacher, teachers in particular. And his emphasis on religious teachers could, could easily lead us to make the argument that everything we do is religious. Everything in life is religious, is religious. Just because something is not being taught in a church or in a synagogue does not mean that it's not religious. Inside of our hidden spiritual DNA is the sequence that makes us worship. We just are worshipers. Tim Keller called us um, idol factories because if we do not use our uh, worship, um, the draw to worship God, we will worship other things called idols. So oftentimes we end up making um, ourselves the object of our worship. Um, we're, we're not a fan of that, just for the record. Because when you become the, the, the object of your own worship and desire, you become an incredibly hard person to live with. Everything begins to resolve or revolve around us, around our needs, around our desires, around our happiness. And when we become the object of our own worship instead of God's voice and the Bible teaching us the way to go, these religious manifestos, these things in the world that teach us a different way to follow um, instead of following God become louder than the voice of God in our existence. We must understand this, that we are all being led somewhere. This is the language that Jesus uses. Can a blind person lead someone else? Can a blind person, can teachers lead disciples to understand? We are being led. We must understand. Someone is choosing a way for us. And that means where the leader goes, we follow many times. And whether that someone is our narcissistic selves or someone else, we toe the line. We just get behind them and follow. And the danger in following someone who is not God is that it might lead us to a destination that will have a drastically negative impact in our lives. And Jesus warns them and warns us that the wrong teacher, hear me, will lead you into a pit, a pit. All through the Bible, we see the authors using the pit as a description for calamity and trouble and distress. 
and the ultimate destruction. Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology, that's a mouthful, says this, that the word pit is used oftentimes in the Old Testament to denote a hole in the ground, which is often used to catch wild animals or to collect water for drinking. Sometimes they would use this pit as dungeons or prisons where they'd place people who remembers Joseph being thrown into a pit, right? This is the Old Testament story. But also in the New Testament, we see the word pit used figuratively. It is a metaphor for the grave and death no one escapes the pit, says the psalmist in, verse, in Psalm 49. Speaking of death, everyone's going to meet their end. No one escapes it. The pit is a dark place where the dead are without strength. They are forsaken by the living, and they are forgotten by God. In the pit, there is no thanksgiving. There is no praise. There is no hope. And at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, it says, in the old, it is the ultimate destination for the devil who is Satan. He will be thrown into a pit. And Jesus says, the one you are listening to, if they are not a trustworthy guide, will lead you into a what? Pit. Sorry, it's not Jesus. They will lead you into a, I lied. Forgive me. The answer on that one was not Jesus. It's pit. This is the line. I'm going to stay right here. If we're not following a trustworthy guide, you will not find yourself in a place other than a pit. The Old Testament story of uh, King Saul tells us that, um, that oftentimes when people choose their own way instead of God's way, you get to see the calamity firsthand. The Israelites were God's people. You might know this story from the Old Testament book of First Second Samuel. They were rescued out of slavery and um, from Egypt, and they made a covenant with God that he would be their God, they, he, they would be his people. And God led his people through a succession of individuals that we call prophets. And Samuel was one of those prophets. And the prophets would speak to the, God's people, telling them what God desired, and the people would obey. And when they obeyed, they were blessed by God. One day, they looked at the nations that are around them, it's so unusual when you read scripture that you sometimes forget that there are other people besides the Israelites because all the attention seems to focus on them. But hear me, just like you and I live with unbelievers too, they lived amongst unbelievers. They lived amongst people who did not follow Yahweh, the true God. And so one day the people of God come to Samuel the prophet and they say, we're looking at all these neighbors, the nations close to us, and all of them have kings and we want a king too. And jealousy's roots reached deep into the soil of their hearts and they began to ache for a king of their own. And being led by their worldly desires, they brazenly go to the prophet Samuel and they force him to declare to God that they want a king. They no longer want, want to be led by Samuel. And hear me, they no longer want to be led by God. And so God lovingly warns them he tells them that this decision is going to cost you and it will cost you more than you possibly even know, but God let them choose. But blind with passion for conformity to their contemporaries, they chose a king. They did not listen to God and King Saul was chosen among the men. Scripture tells us that he literally stood head and shoulders above everyone else. Their thought was that tall people make good kings because they're strong and intimidating. And that was the case for Saul at first. He won many victorious battles, military battles. He served God and his people quite faithfully in the beginning. But quickly he became disobedient to God. He became arrogant with his people. 
and his decisions actually thrust the Israelites into terrible situations. And at one point, King Saul even lost this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. You don't need to know what it is. It's just the presence of God that was amongst the people. He lost the Ark of the Covenant in a battle to their great enemy, the Philistines. God becomes exasperated with Saul. The people become exasperated with Saul and they begin to look for a replacement. Just know this, by reading the story in the Bible, we have learned to be, we have learned in asking for a king, the Israelites showed their lack of faith in who? God, in God. And the king they received ultimately demonstrated the same lack of faith. Saul's primary task as king was to assure security for the Israelites, to protect them from attack from the neighboring enemies like the Philistines. But one day when King Saul was faced with a, a giant named Goliath, you might know this story, a giant who was head and shoulders above Saul, <laughs> taller than Saul, that his fear overcame his faith. And he failed the people of God and he failed God. Throughout his entire, the entirety of his reign, Saul similarly, similarly doubted God and he sought counsel in all of the wrong places and he finally died by suicide as his army was routed by the enemy. Does this sound like a pit to you? Yeah. And it started, hear me, lovingly, it started just in their decision to choose their own way. Right. And we could do a whole series of teachings on that. We know this, that this story certainly resonates with us. And we understand that it's not just kings and or political leaders that can lead people astray. We know that happens. But there are so many competing ideologies, competing ideologies to the ways of God's kingdom and the way that it works. And if we want to thrive, and if we want to follow after God and not find ourselves falling into a pit, we must listen to the, the trustful teacher. Pastor John Tyson in New York City says this, that one of the greatest issues facing the world today is the idea of the sovereignty of the self. Deep breath, everyone. Buckle up. It's about to get gross up in here. That we would all say we like freedom, yeah? Oh yeah, welcome to America. Of course, but the concept of, of sovereignty of self is like freedom on steroids. It's freedom from anything outside of myself. Freedom from society at large. What can this society around me say to me? What does it know? I... We want freedom from the previous generation. We say things like this, you guys have ruined it up to this point, we'll take it from here, <laughs> right? We don't need you telling us what to do. We've got it from here. We want freedom from religious authority. We see that churches are filled with hypocrisy and oppression, so we want nothing to do with them. And so we leave, we want freedom from political authority. We can't trust politicians, say amen. amen. And all these things lead to this autonomy of self, this sovereignty of self. Therefore we say, who can we trust? No one, so I'll just listen to me. I'll just listen to myself. And the mistaken conclusion dismisses all of the wisdom from outside sources and it elevates the self as the one governing authority in all matters of life, ethics, what is right and wrong, sexuality, gender, family dynamics, and on and on the list goes. And no one can tell them what is right or what is wrong because they are the ones who choose. Hear me, we are all being led by someone. Who is it? Is it you? Is it God? Is it something else? Is something so 
garnered your attention, that you just devoted yourself to it like an idol or a totem. And it doesn't matter if there's a phone ringing up here. And it doesn't matter where it leads you, you're going to stay connected to it for, for everything. And Jesus equates that type of living to a blind man following a blind teacher or a, a, a blind pupil following a, a blind teacher. Is this, is this tracking with anyone? So we use simple logic and we would just understand that, that no one person, whether it's you or not you, no one person could possibly know the way to navigate life with 100% accuracy. That is except for this one person that we know and his name is? Jesus. Well done. This is why Jesus in verse 40 says that a disciple or a pupil is not above his teacher. He means that students can't be expected to know things that they just don't know. They're at the mercy of the one teaching. Like God wouldn't fault you for not knowing, but he'd fault you for not listening when he's given you a wise teacher to follow. It'd be unkind and cruel of him to say, well, they should have known better. They don't know better. Why, why do you think Jesus was sent? So that we might know better. People are impressionable. They're easily led. We're just but blind people looking to move forward. J.C. Ryle says this, that if a man will hear unsound instruction, then we cannot expect, to, expect him to become otherwise than unsound in faith himself. Simply put, they will go where they are led. And Jesus ends in verse 40. The second half of verse 40 says, and when that person is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. If you follow a blind person, you'll become even more blind and fall into a pit. You will become like your teacher. And those of us who are Christians, believers, born again, right? Those who, who devote, say we devote our lives to Christ, we have this opportunity to follow Jesus. And it says that we will become like our teacher. I said earlier in the message that it is God's great desire that we would be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus. That he, de he desires us to look like him. And, and just so you know, in his day and age, he was... He was highly disliked by many people because of the things he stood for. I have the wonderful sin of people pleasing. Anyone else? It's disgusting. I hate it. I hate it, but I will bend over backwards if you just like me. Whatever you want. Yeah, I'll put it in my mouth. What is it? Dog turd? Sure, I'll do it. Will you like me afterwards? This is, this is third grade, Jeff, on the playground. It's, I'm, this is the edge. I didn't go over the edge yet. I'm fine. I know exactly where I am. Is that people pleasing will just cause us to do things that we know stand in direct contrast to the things of God. People pleasing, group pleasing. There are groups of people out there who just say, you can't think a certain way. And if you do so, then you are against them. You become an enemy to them. Well, I don't want to be anyone's enemy. What do I have to do to not be an enemy? just do that thing. He says, can a blind person lead a blind person without falling into a pit? The answer is no.
to race through the last little section here. Verse 41, he says, you see that speck that's in your brother's eye and don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Verse 42, how can you say to your brother, let me take out that speck in your own eye when you yourself don't even see the log that's in your own? Right? Everyone knows this passage. This is a common saying in Jesus' day. We have sources that contain this quote or something like it that go all the way back to Aristotle. Like, so this, is, this, this um, parable existed long before Jesus. But he uses this statement because it's a practical way of explaining um, that the unreasonableness of finding something small in somebody else's life and pointing at it and focusing on it instead of focusing in on maybe the issues in your own life. And I know oftentimes this is used, misused, I should say, to say, well, you can't judge me, right? We get all of that. I think it just it requires that we should have a little moment of self-examination that we should focus on ourselves too. Well, you'll never learn to pick up and eat food on your own if your mom and dad always fed you food. You'll never get to use utensils until you get a chance to. God is giving us opportunities to do things like this and we need to do so. I'm really racing through. I have a whole bunch more to say, but I'm trying to get through all this since we're out of time. I mentioned, um, I'll close with this. I mentioned earlier that uh, when Jesus was, was speaking to Nicodemus, the religious leader, and he was talking about a new way of following God, and he said, you have to be born again. And there's big you know, talk about all of that. You can read that in John chapter three. But Paul picks up this language in 2 Corinthians chapter five, when he says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. He's a new creation. He said, the old has passed away and the new has come. So my encouragement to us, and I want to end encouraging because sometimes I don't. I sometimes can stand up here and just like, you're an idiot. <laughs> We're idiots. I want to encourage us. Nobody comes to church to get beat up unless you go to Jehovah's Witness Church. Oh, just sorry. <laughs> Here's the line right here. That was real close to the line, but it wasn't over the line. It was close. Going over the line would say something about the Southern Baptists. That's, hey, oh, see that? Feel that? That was like the temperature of the room shifted. So now we're back over here. It's okay. It's okay. Where was I? I have no idea where I was. Being born again. This idea of something being made new, that old things are gone. So we have to learn to embrace, hear me, Embrace your new identity in Christ. The way he has now made you new with the, the, the ways of his kingdom written on our hearts. That's what the Bible says. That he'll remove our heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. That the law, the new law will be written upon our hearts. The way you think about things now, and it is in direct opposition to what the world is telling you, it is right. And Paul would say, embrace it. Embrace these things. You have been made new, made different. Embrace these new identities. Become empowered by the Spirit of God, which I want to remind you was there at the beginning in all creation. When there was nothing, there was the Spirit of God. 
And God spoke and there was things made and it was the Spirit of God making these things. Listen, God has put the Spirit of God inside of you. So if there's no compassion for the hurting, God can place that inside of you out of nowhere. The Spirit of God can do that. If there's no enemy love in you, if you were just strong, refusing to bend in these issues, Christ can put his Spirit inside of you and change you. All of his power is all you need. And when we fail, church, and I'll end with this, we gotta repent. Yuck, yuck. If you don't know, repent is just a churchy word for turn around. That you, you've gone on down the wrong trail, bro. Turn around and go back to where God is. Somebody, maybe you, maybe someone else has led you astray. That's why you did that. That's why you believed it was okay to do. That's why you said that or whatever. You have been lied to and misled and God is saying, repent and turn around. So we repent. We say, God, we're sorry. I've come to believe that God, not only does he exist in the after, right? not only does God exist after we've made the dumb decision and we can say we're sorry and he's like, I know, and he loves us anyways, hear me what I know. God, God exists before the decision is made. He exists here too. All too often we wait to make the boneheaded decision and then go, sorry, sorry. And, and I get that. And we should be sorry. He's here too. So what, when you're thinking about the decision and you don't know if you should do it or not do it, ask him and he can tell you. And then you don't have to go through the sorrow and the heartache and the whatever else and then say you're sorry. So listen, is this tracking with anyone? All right. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm done. Let's stand up, everyone stand up. We've been doing this the last few weeks. I wanna continue this. Um, I've been writing these little prayers, really benedictions of sorts that I wanna pray over you. And to receive them, I just ask that you would just extend your hands. Okay, You're like this is weird. What kind of church is this? I know. Let me pray these words over you. Heavenly Father, as we come to the end of this time of reflection on your word, we are grateful for the insights and the truths that have been shared. Lord, we do recognize the importance of following your teachings and the example of Jesus in our lives. We acknowledge that we are often prone to judgment and to hypocrisy, and to self-righteousness. We pray for your grace and your guidance to transform our hearts and our minds. So we say, we say, help us, Lord, help us to be humble and self-aware, to see our own shortcomings before pointing out the faults of others. Grant us wisdom to discern your truth and the strength to live in accordance with it. God, we want to do what you want us to do, but sometimes we're weak. May your Holy Spirit work within us to align our lives with your purpose. And may they reflect the love and compassion of Christ to those around us. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the new life that we have in Christ and for the opportunity to be renewed and transformed by your power. God, help us as we continue to grow in maturity, as we are guided by your word and led by your spirit. Empower us to be agents of change in a world that so often values self-centeredness, 
and worldly wisdom. So God, as we go from this place, may, you, may we remember the lessons that we've learned today and apply them to our daily lives. And may our actions speak louder than our words. And may your light shine through us, drawing others to the hope and the transformation that can only be found in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to support you and have you be a part of our community. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. There you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, and even contribute to the growth of the church through online giving. Or you can come see us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. We can't wait to see you.